Jericho Road is a podcast and a Sunday school class and a ministry of St. Luke's Episcopal Church in Birmingham, Alabama. These days, we're looking at the world of Jesus as it is told by the Gospel of Mark. We hope you'll join us. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Jericho Road. In this season three, we are looking at the world of Jesus through the Gospel of Mark. And to get us started, let's recap what we know so far about Gospels in general. Gospels are not newspaper reporting, but rather they are carefully crafted uh, retellings with events and details conveying something deeper, something larger. We also know that Mark's Gospel is the shortest. Gosh, almost all of Mark is found both within Matthew and Luke. Uh, And for a long time, people perhaps thought that Mark was incomplete because it was short, but now we think it's more like a short story where every word has meaning, every word counts. And for this reason, Mark may, may be my favorite retelling of the story of Jesus. And so last week in episode one, we saw how a priest of the temple who had the title of Baptist named John, John the Baptist, uh, left his inherited job and a really nice life for a new ministry on the Jordan River. So that's that's the beginning of Mark's gospel. An, an event so miraculous, Mark doesn't even begin with Christmas, but rather for John to leave the temple behind and to go down to the river is something just as wondrous as a star over Bethlehem. And so today the drama continues as his cousin Jesus joins him. So I'm going to read just a few verses. You don't have to read a whole lot in Mark's gospel. It is Mark chapter 1, beginning with the ninth verse and ending with verse 12. And we'll see what we can dig out of here. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And just as he was coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens torn apart and the Spirit descending like a dove on him. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, the Beloved. With you I am well pleased. And the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness forty days, tempted by Satan. He was with the wild beasts, and the angels waited on him. Last week, I made the case that the Jordan River was a a new ritual bath, uh, the sort of which they had all over the nation of Israel. And of course, they had the industrial ritual baths. They're called mikvah on the southern steps of the Temple Mount, the place where John worked. And so uh, the case here is that John would use the Jordan as a new ritual bath that would be natural and free, unlike anything made by humans, anything industrial like the Temple Complex. I also mentioned that for John to go to the Jordan River was political and theological theater because John dressed up like a prophet and he acted like a prophet. He quoted prophets even. But now I want us to think about the Jordan River as an important symbol in itself. Uh, The Jordan uh, was a lifeline in the wilderness. It it actually gave life to that barren part of the world. Uh, Joshua crossed the Jordan River to secure the land for them. They all knew that. And then there's a story that everyone knew uh, from some eight centuries before that involved the Jordan River, and I want to paraphrase it today. Now, remember, the people living in, in the world of Jesus knew Bible stories perhaps better than we did, and they would readily recall when they would see an event something else. And this is a remarkable story involving the Jordan found in 2 Kings chapter 5. And I'm just going to paraphrase it because it's a fun story to tell, and you can look it up and read it. It's a really good read. It's about a general by the name of Naaman, who was a general of Aram, A-R-A-M, which is actually now the the nation of Syria. So he was a general from a powerful uh, neighboring country who had everything in the world going on. He had a, a big army, 
He had the respect of his peers. He had the fear of his soldiers. He had wealth. Uh, he had a big family. He had just one problem. He had leprosy, terrible skin disease. And so Naaman was itching and miserable. And one of his servants happened to be a Hebrew girl from the land of the Israelites. And she says to him, uh, there is a mighty prophet. I believe that my God uh, through this mighty prophet can heal you. So Naaman, being a powerful general, knows that he's just he needs to go just right to the top. And so he sends silver and gold and a letter to the king of Israel. And the king of Israel has kind of a Rumpelstiltskin moment here. It kind of terrifies him because he gets this letter and he's like, wait a minute, I can't cure leprosy. Naaman is trying to pick a fight with me, to which Elisha somehow gets word of this. And he says to the king, look, you just send him over to my house. I got this. And so Naaman, you just imagine the retinue, right? You've got some chariots and some plumed horses, and you got a chest of silver and gold, and you've got soldiers and whatever else would accompany an important general. And they come up to Elisha's house, and Elisha sends his servant out to see um, the general. Well, the general is just absolutely peeved. First of all, the prophet doesn't even come out on his own, but sends out a servant with a message. Go wash in the Jordan River seven times and you will be clean. Now, here's why I like to have some fun with the story. Uh, I'll paraphrase it just a little bit. You can only imagine uh, Naaman saying, in effect, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I have a chest full of silver and gold. And then the servant says, no, just wash in the Jordan River seven times. That's what the boss said. I know, I know, I know, I know. But I'm a very powerful man. Go wash in the Jordan River seven times. Yeah, yeah, I got that, I got that. But I also have a graduate school education. Okay, go wash in the Jordan seven times. That's what the boss said. And then and then eventually, and this is in, in Scripture, uh, almost word for word, Naaman says, look, are not the rivers of Damascus and far, far better than the Jordan River? The Jordan River is not even much of a river. I've got a better river back home. And the servant says, again, I'm telling you what the boss said, go wash in the Jordan River seven times and you'll be clean, which puts the general in despair because it's not hard. One of his servants then pipes in, General, if God had asked you to do something really difficult, you would have done it. How much more can you just go wash? And he does, and he's clean. Here's the point of the story. Following God is both hard and easy. The easy part is we just do it. We step in, we follow, we trust. I mean, the hard part is when hard times happen, right? The, the, the curveball uh, hits us squarely in the head. The, the health fails or people disappoint us or we wake up and find ourselves in a place far from home. But, but the easy part is knowing that we're never alone. The easy part is submitting to a higher authority. The easy part is knowing that we're not left by our own bootstraps. And here by the Jordan River, Jesus does something really easy. He washes. And he identifies with all of humanity by washing with us. Well, that's not all that happens, and it's not all we just read. Um, gosh, I love how the the uh, Renaissance painters would all treat the baptism of Jesus with a sky cracking open and a dove coming down. And I especially love the paintings that have John the Baptist baptizing Jesus with a little shell, like we would our children at St. Luke's or like you do in a Catholic church, when in reality, I mean, the, the whole mikvah point was to wash, was to go underwater. And so the Baptists have got us on that one. I'm pretty sure Jesus went under the water. But of course, the point of the paintings is that this was no ordinary event. I mean, the heavens were torn in two, and the Spirit descended like a dove, we're told. 
Now, this brings us to something that I like to say about Mark's gospel. Uh, It helps to read the whole story, and maybe this is why it's my favorite. It helps to read the whole one, because you can sit and you can read it in about 45 minutes, and you can see things that you wouldn't see before. And if you read the whole story, you'll see that the word torn used here in the first chapter is also used in in chapter 1538, near the end, when Jesus breathes his last. In other words, the sky is torn here in chapter 1, but then the sky is, the, the veil, the temple rather, is torn in Mark chapter 15. The word tear is the same word, and it connects this, this event at the Jordan River with the temple itself. Again, they always connect with that temple again, which brings me to an important text behind the story. Much like Naaman, it's a story that they all knew, and, and this tearing would immediately evoke something uh, that they would have understood right away living in the world of Jesus. It's a text from 2 Samuel chapter 7, which I like to say is one of the most important chapters of the Bible that nobody ever quotes or writes down. And here's how it goes. 2 Samuel chapter 7, David is king and is inspired to build a temple. See, David is now on top of his game. He is the king of a united 12 tribes. He has a vast number of holdings of land. He has a palace in a newly captured city of Jerusalem that will be his capital city, and he's got a great idea. God will no longer live in a box, but he will build a house for God. And it's here that the prophet Nathan, whose job it is to speak the truth to the king, reminds David in 2 Samuel chapter 7 that God never asked for a temple. In fact, if you look at the second half of the book of Genesis, God goes to great lengths to describe the tent in which the Ark of the Covenant would rest, a tent that would be very intentional in its stitching and its creation and its colors and in its making and in its rituals, but also something that could pivot and move with them wherever they would go. The tent would be their model for faith. And some have suggested, and I think this makes sense too, that the boy David also embodies this Israelite faith when he defeats a a giant on a battlefield in the Valley of Elah. He defeats Goliath with smooth stones drug up from the creek and a slingshot by using his head and by using his wits and by using the power of God to work through even an unlikely little boy. That was the whole point of worship in a tent that would move with them. But kings being kings, David wouldn't build it. Solomon would construct a temple, and there would be trouble from the start. I've got a, I've got this, this little exercise that I like to do when I go to the Holy Land. I will stand close to the temple, and I will, I will try to see how far the temple and how Golgotha were from each other. We all sing this hymn called On a Hill Far Away, Stood an Old Rugged Cross, and I like to, to stand on a rooftop, actually, in a neighborhood and look at the Dome of the Rock and see just how close Jesus would have been when they had this cosmic showdown between Jesus finally and this temple. They were so close to each other, this temple that had such a history and such a such a mixed bag for them. Solomon would build the temple, and it would split the kingdom. The cost of it was exorbitant. The, the people who lived far away from it were jealous of the people who lived near to it. In just one generation, you would have 10 tribes in the north split from two tribes in the south that claimed Jerusalem as their capital city with the temple. The 10 tribes of the north would leave. Uh, they would build rival worship spaces, which is a waste of money uh, when the poor could be fed, right, and, and taken care of, and then eventually they would disappear forever. The temple would be a, a, a set of crosshairs 
on the backs of the Hebrews for foreign rulers who would want to capture it. And eventually, the Babylonians would capture it and take them far away from home. And when they went back, they would rebuild the temple, but they didn't have the money to build what they had. And so they were sad. And so that would be a point. And then 40 years before Jesus' birth, a king named Herod, a client king of the Romans, a sellout uh, king, would make the temple into the wonder of the ancient world. And it was a sham. And we talked about that in the first uh, chapter of this of this series. And so here, when Jesus dies in, in Mark chapter 15, and God rips, tears the veil of the temple, which separated God's presence from everyone else, tears it from top to bottom, just like he tore the sky, God is saying, in effect, I don't want this house. I don't want this house. I don't want this house. I never wanted this house. I want you. And that's the message of the baptism. That's the message of the scene by the Jordan River. So we see that, that, that God descends like a dove, uh, like a dove. It could have been something pretty like a dove, but a dove would be a messianic anointing, if you will, a messianic sign that Jesus is who God uh, promised would come. Jesus is the answer. Jesus is who they had all been waiting for. But the spirit like a dove would come down and then God would talk, which also reminds us of another key point, a story that they all knew in the world of Jesus, that there on the banks of the Jordan, God is doing what God does again and again, which is what he did in Genesis chapter 1, which is brooding over the face of the creation again, just like a bird, and speaking again, just like he did from the very beginning. We're going to see this from time to time, and I'll remind you that the Gospels in many ways are a mirror of the Old Testament before them. They have the same shape. This is why they're not merely newspaper reporting, but rather they're told in a way that reflects what has happened before. And I don't want you to make a mistake here and think that the gospel writers thought that Jesus came to start a new religion or to fix whatever had happened before. Rather, the gospel writers are doing something very Hebrew, very Jewish, and very Bible, and that is the principle of repetition, which simply means that the Hebrews always believed that if God did something once, God would do it again which is why we study the Bible. We don't merely learn these ancient stories or these Bronze Age texts because they're interesting, and they are, but rather because if God did something for Naaman the Syrian, God will do something for me. If God did something for King David, God will do something for me. If Jesus did something for the crowds, Jesus will do something for me. God will do it again. All this by the banks of the River Jordan. But this very spirit that broods over creation, it doesn't, it doesn't rest there. It actually drives Jesus into the wilderness. And I want you to understand when we say wilderness in the Bible, we're not talking woods or even water, but rather a moonscape as, as it, the wilderness sits on the lowest place on planet Earth. And there are really two key points I want to make about this wilderness and the reason why I believe the wilderness is absolutely where God wanted Jesus to go. First of all, we're told that he was in the wilderness 40 days, 40 days. Now, 40 in the Bible is a holy number. The Hebrews would do this all the time. They would use numbers to evoke an idea, and 40 is one of these. 40 simply means God's time. There were two words for time in the Greek language, which the New Testament is written, and this all makes sense if you break it down. There's chronos time, which we all know. That's where we get the word chronograph. I mean, chronos time is, is scheduled time. Chronos time means time flies. Chronos time is the time we don't have enough hours in the day. Chronos time is how we sort of pack our busy weeks. 
And then there's another kind of time, and it's God's time, and that's Kairos time. Kairos time is holy time. Kairos time is God's time. Kairos time can sneak up on us. It's a time within time. It's a time when Kronos breaks down, and we're we're in a tunnel, if you will, a tunnel of learning or a tunnel of wisdom, perhaps even a tunnel of pain where we need the solace of God. You know, Kairos time can begin with a call in the middle of the night or a bad biopsy or a broken heart. It could also begin with a surprise or, or feeling particularly grateful for God's blessing. So, th- so that's the first point I want to make about this journey to the desert is this was God's time with Jesus, a, a learning, an inbreaking of wisdom, if you will, a testing, of course, and it all takes place, here's my second point, in the shadow of Jericho. In the wilderness, the only inhabited place you can find is the city of Jericho. Jericho is one of the oldest continually existed cities on planet Earth. It is 10,000 years old. And in my earlier podcast, I try to make the point that the story of us when it comes to the library that we call the Bible begins on Genesis chapter 12, when Abram, later known as Abraham, leaves a city and goes out to be a better humanity. And the point I try to make in, in, in season one of Jericho Road is that Genesis 1 through 11 is actually an artful retelling of our descent from something better into living in a city, which is something less than what God wanted for us. In other words, the Garden of Eden was an idyllic existence with a poem to tell us about it, with a man named Adam, which means earth, and a woman named Eve, which means life, and then living in communion with each other and with God and with the world that God gave them. And yet, if you want, read Genesis 1 through 11, you can see this, this slow loss until they end with a tower and Babel and a city wall and a fearful people, and it's just less than what God had ever dreamed for any of them. Now, to talk like an anthropologist for a minute, I mean, that's that's the scriptural account. An anthropologist would say that for some 100,000 years of some form of human existence, the human species would live as a hunter-gatherer. They would have a 20, 30-hour work week. They would follow the weather. They would live in family groups and take care of each other until they begin to build cities like Jericho, some 10,000 years uh, before uh, us. And so in a city, what they would do is they would begin to plant wheat. They would domesticate wheat, and then they would have to build a wall to guard the wheat, and then they would have to build an army to guard the wheat or to attack someone else's wheat, and they would stay put. And instead of following the weather, they would have to wait for rain so that the wheat would grow. And by the way, in the Old Testament, all that business about a golden calf, it's a rain god because if it doesn't rain, your wheat won't grow and you will die. And suddenly they become dependent on themselves and not upon God, and people are hurt, and most people are starving, and it's just less than what God had intended for his, his children when he gave us this beautiful world. So these temptations, and I think it's telling that Mark doesn't tell us what these temptations are because I believe Mark knows what our temptations are. We all know what our temptations are. They're basic human needs uh, that we all know deep down, and it's here that Jesus gets to model for us a new and better humanity. Now, Matthew and Luke do list the temptations, although they reverse the order, but I'm going to go with Luke chapter 4 to show you that there are three basic human desires that are represented in this time in the wilderness, this Kairos time. First of all, the first temptation you will remember is stones into bread. Turn these stones into bread. So that's the temptation for sustenance. So that's the temptation for 
for food, yes, but also livelihood and security and those kinds of things. The second temptation is that, is that if he would simply bow to Satan, then he would have all the authority that he needed. And that's the temptation of control. That's just the temptation to know that once you've scored a deal, you don't have to worry about it any anymore, right? That's the temptation of just knowing that it's going to be okay, which leads to the third, which perhaps is the most poignant of all. The devil takes Jesus to the pinnacle of the temple, which is a place. It's the southeast corner of the Temple Mount. You can actually look over into the Kidron Valley. It's the highest place, and so they called it the pinnacle. A trumpeteer would call the faithful to worship from that place, and 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 there he took him, and he said, if you throw yourself from this high place, the angels will bear you up and protect you, and then that would be the temptation of certainty. Jesus wouldn't have to have faith. So all these are basic human needs, but if the Hebrew religion, the religion of the Bible, which by extension through Christ is our religion, says anything, it says this, you can't have it all. There's always a limit to what our appetites will will be allowed for us. Uh, God will always be on top. Faith will always be necessary. Remember I said it's both easy and it's hard. The easy part is to submit and to follow. The hard part is to remember from time to time that, that God is not a vending machine and that everything is not afforded to us. And so the poignant part about Gosh, the pinnacle temptation is that at the end of the story, Jesus is arrested. He's dragged up steps to the place of the the house of the high priest, which from the Garden of Gethsemane is right beneath the pinnacle itself. And I wonder, I just wonder if on that dark night, that dark Thursday going into the, the wee early morning hours of Friday for this show trial that would leave him dead, uh, before sundown the next day, I wonder if he looked up. Did he just look up and remember you know, that he was going the distance for us all? This much we know. In the wilderness, in God's time, the wild beasts are with Jesus and the angels are waiting on him and Jesus is beginning to show for us a new way of being human. Christians love to say that Jesus saves, and Jesus does save. Jesus does save us for heaven, but I don't worry about that so much. I think that Jesus also saves us to live here and today and now, a better way of being the people that God made us to be, trusting that on the other side of death itself, we also know how it works. He came and went the distance to show us. So there's a whole lot in the story. And I hope that you'll join me for the next episode as we watch Jesus descend like a rock star in Galilee. Thank you, friends.